All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, here it is. We're going to do the postmortem of what happened on election day. We're also going to give you some updates on critical races in Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. Plus, we're going to talk about the silver lining. There's actually some really interesting things that happened in New York City. Of course, Florida was a good day for us. We're going to discuss why, but then probably the most important thing that we're going to go over is lessons learned as well as some lessons that probably won't be learned that really need to be. All of that coming up next. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. We appreciate everyone who joined us on Tuesday night for our first live stream in two years. I think we had a great time. And to all the new members who joined us in Volley after that live stream, we appreciate you joining us there and carrying on the conversation about the elections taking place and the updates we are learning by the second. So thank you for joining us, and we appreciate your time. All right, as always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, an okay guy. My beautiful bride, Tina, Queen of the Bees, has elected to not be with us today, and that's, uh, that's disappointing. another disappointing thing, but she's spending the time with our oldest daughter, Lily, who is going to be turning 20 tomorrow. Wow. That's right. Yeah, we're pretty excited about that. And then we, of course, have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Who Can we, we stop calling me political prognosticator? Because I got a lot wrong. <laughs> Wait, when are we going to buy the puppy? Yeah, that's right. We need to get the puppy that's going to replace To Christian. be fair, there were a lot of people that got even more wrong. We, we've decided that for next time, we're going to have um, we're going to have Christian make his predictions, and then we're going to have a monkey randomly throw stuff at a television screen with a map on it. <laughs> We're just kidding, Christian. It wasn't It wasn't your fault. All right. And then, of course, our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Thank you, Nick. All right. First things first, we're going to go right into kind of the update on where we're at right now. So as we look at the Senate, um, bottom line is it's going to come down to a couple of races on whether or not Republicans have a, a chance to take the Senate. The three that are still in play are Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Currently, the Republicans leading in Nevada, but some of the outstanding votes are in Democrat districts, so it's not looking great. Masters, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think Masters is going to pull it off in Arizona. And then when it comes to Georgia, it looks like we're going into a runoff. And I, I just, I don't know. Christian, do you got any, what, what do you think about the runoff in Georgia if we have one? Um, lean Democrat. Okay, Christian, there you go. Christian goes lean Democrat in Georgia. If that happens, the way you just described, Democrats will maintain their control of the Senate. All right, what does it look like in the House? So in the House right now, the Republicans have gained six seats, all right? Plus, um, 
because of Florida and New York, and we're gonna we're gonna go into details about this. Um, you know, two two of the heroes for the Republicans on this side are Ron DeSantis and Lee Zeldin. We've also got some we've also got some potential villains, but um, it does look like Republicans are gonna take the House. However, it will probably be just barely. What are you thinking, Christian? Two twenty? It's looking anywhere from like two hundred twenty to two hundred twenty five seats. We've actually got the map pulled up. This is from uh, Politico. This is where the uh, state of the race is currently for control of the House of Representatives. Um, dark colored red and blue is already called for both sides. And then shaded red and blue is where one side is leading. Um, what we're looking at right now is that there's one seat outstanding in New York. It's the 22nd, by the way, this, um, in the 18th, that's already been called for Ryan. They just haven't updated that. Um, the 22nd in New York is still outstanding. The second in Maine, um, this one in uh, Illinois has already been called. Lauren Boebert's race in Colorado is still outstanding. There what is, is that, like 62 votes right now? She is currently trailing, I think, by about 62 votes. Jeez. It could be updated at this point, but it's it's like less than 100. Um, there's one race in Arizona, the first district that's still outstanding. Technically, the three congressional seats that are held by Democrats are still outstanding in Nevada, but Democrats are favored to win all of them. Um, it looks like the gerrymander did help, um, hold up for Democrats in that state. And then there's a host. Of, I won't even go through the list because there's like five or six outstanding races in California because apparently they take forever to count ballots out there. And then there's two more that are important in Washington and Oregon. There is the third district in Washington, and then there is the newly created fifth district in Oregon that um, had not previously existed. Republicans are probably favored to win both of them. Democrats basically, I actually um, created my own house map. Um, and this is what this looks like. And shaded red and blue is, again, still outstanding. But I've color colored it not by which party's currently in the lead. I have it colored by, statistically speaking, which party's most likely to win. Okay. And so when you look at this map, and for those of you that are just tuning in to us on audio, um, the map that I've got here currently has 212 basically already done and called for for Republicans, 199 that are called for for Democrats. And what that leaves is 25 districts that are still outstanding. Out of those 25, I've got 14 that are very likely, in my opinion, to end up going for Democrats. And again, these are they're still yeah. counting ballots, right? And then 10 that are very likely to end up going to Republicans. And if that breaks the way that I think it does, that's going to end up with 222 seats for Republicans and 213 for Democrats. All right. Well, there you go. There's the predictions right there. Also, let's go to governors right now. Uh, the Democrats picked up two governor seats, the the ones that we're really kind of tracking right now. Um, it looks like Nevada is probably going to go Republican, but it's, yeah, I mean, right now, 50 to 46%, so probably going to get the governorship in Nevada. Um, Arizona is just really too close to call. Right now, we're talking about like 13,000 votes out of, you know, gosh, about 1.9 million cast right now. So. Something that I found interesting is that the betting markets, I, we've now got a uh, predict its map up. Yeah. Um, this is what the, the people that have money on the line are saying. First off, the betting markets actually did get it very wrong in the Senate and, but they did over, um, they, they did correct very quickly once the ballot started being counted. It's a uh -huh. very like 2016 type scenario yeah. in, that, in that respect, but, or 2020 for that matter. But, um, what you see and predicted is that Democrats are now overwhelmingly favored to win the Senate races in Arizona and Nevada. But 
and if I actually pulled up the state and uh, the state elections, Republicans are still overwhelmingly favored to win the governorships in those two states. Yeah. So, so it's looking like a split and, ticket. Yeah. Yeah. And that has been one thing that we've kind of seen across the board is there's been a lot of split tickets, um, and and even in ones where necessarily, you know, it, it didn't work out. Um, you know, where they won. I mean, you you still saw, like in Pennsylvania. I mean, Oz got a whole lot closer than Mastriano did. Um, you know, and then you look at in, in places like New Hampshire where, you know, Sununu won pretty handily and uh, Bulldog just got crushed. Um, the the other thing that's kind of interesting for this is Whitmer in Michigan. Not only did Whitmer win by a large margin, like 11 points, but for the first time in a long time, like the entire Michigan legislature. For the first time since, I've got it pulled up here, for the first time since 1983, the entire state legislature and governorship in Michigan are in the hands of the Democratic yeah, Party. So, so Michigan went with the "govern me harder" like model this this last election. So and we can speak here in Virginia to firsthand experience for for our audience members that are tuning in from Michigan. Yeah. Um, now is the time to not sit on your hands. Now is the time to start getting organized because yep. you are not going to enjoy the next two years. Nope. It's going to be rough, but they're going to do a whole lot of stuff that you're going to be able to run against. And that's what happened in Virginia. They, they got power. Um, they, they controlled the house. They controlled the Senate. They controlled the governor's mansion, the Lieutenant governor, they controlled the attorney general, and they thought they were on the ascendancy forever. And two years later, they lost all of it except for the Senate because the Senate wasn't up. So anyways, that is a once over the world of where we are currently at. Now what we're going to do is actually move into some stuff that is a little bit silver lining. So everyone's been hearing, like, again, if you're, if you're a Republican, everyone's been hearing all the bad news. And you know what? We need to hear it. We need to hear it because, believe it or not, Joe Biden had the best midterm election of any president since Bush's first term in right after 9-11. And, so, and there's no excuse for it. But there's a couple exceptions to this, and the first one that we're going to talk about is: Are you going to go to Florida first? Do we want to? Do we want to start with the the shining example? Yeah, we're we're going to start with Florida because what happened in Florida is was so you know Ben Shapiro was talking about this earlier. He said that you know there's there's red ripple, there's red tide, and then there's red wave. Florida was tsunami. Florida was like better than anybody could have possibly hoped for and everybody's talking about this but what we're going to discuss is some more specifics on why this is and and really the areas to watch because i mean if there is a model now for how republicans can win ron DeSantis has said it in florida and, and the way he did it was not just by shouting the loudest the way he did it was by governing really well he, any any Republican out there, by the way, any Republican out there that's like, well, you know, you know, once you win the election, you got to be really careful about what you do. You don't want to, you don't want to upset. It. Ron DeSantis went in there and said, I said I'm going to do this, and I did it. And then when other things came up, he went after it right away, and he was effective. And he didn't care what the press had to say, what I, Hollywood had to say. I cannot tell you how many times I hear people say, well, you know, the press is really going to. Ron DeSantis is like, if you want to make this against. If Ron DeSantis did not let it be the press against the Republican Party. Ron DeSantis made it into the press against the people of Florida. And he was the one defending the people of Florida. And he was the one that was going out there to get things done. And he got him done. And people loved him for it. So, Christian, run us through some of the important numbers here. So, Florida was a complete bloodbath for Democrats. Um, to give you an idea, like, like what happened on Tuesday in Florida was what we were expecting in the rest of the country, and unfortunately it didn't materialize in anywhere other than Florida and one other state that we will be bringing up later today. 
But um, in Florida, it, it really was just a complete wipeout for Democrats. DeSantis did something that we haven't seen for a Republican in literally over 150 years. DeSantis won by the largest margin of any Republican running for, for, for governor in the state since 1868. And not only that, he got almost 60% of the vote. He also won by the largest raw vote margin of any candidate to ever have their name on the ballot for any statewide race in the entire history of Florida. He won by over 1.5 million votes. And, and keep in mind, when he first won election, he won by 0.4%. He won by like 30,000 votes. He didn't even votes. get a majority. He won by 40,000 votes. This time he won by over, I think, 1.5. 1. 1.5 million. 1.5 million. He got almost 60. He came very close to getting 60% in and Florida. And this is right after, right after a hurricane came and tore up Southern Florida. Take that even out of the equation. This is in Florida. Like, like people need to remember, five minutes ago, we were talking about how every single election in Florida went to a recount. Yeah. And like, like Florida was literally the state that decided the 2000 election. Mm -hmm. It's the state that in every single presidential election since 2000 was always being decided by like one or two points. Yeah. It's, it's a state that, as you pointed out, like DeSantis, when he first ran, he, he didn't even get a majority. He barely won. Yeah. And, and then here he comes and, and running for reelection, he ends up winning by, by 1.5 million net votes and he gets almost 60%. Let me, let me go through some of the the most insane things that you could possibly read if, if you follow any sort of political geography in Florida. DeSantis won Hillsborough County, where the city of Tampa is. He won the Tampa metropolitan area in an absolute landslide. Not only did he win every single suburban county around Tampa, like um, Pasco, Pinellas, Lake County, Polk, um, he won Tampa itself. He won Hills Hillsborough County. He came... This close to winning Orange County, Florida, where Orlando is. Orange County is arguably the most liberal county in the Disney. state other than Broward. <laughs> yeah. Orange County is sometimes called like the little slice of San Francisco in the heart of Florida. Yeah. It is ultra liberal. It's, um, it, 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 and, and DeSantis almost won it. And when you when you take the um the surrounding suburbs of it like Seminole County to the north and um um Osceola to the south Osceola has a very large Hispanic population very large Puerto Rican population there's also a very large um Asian population in Osceola um and like like there's a decently large Korean population there too very very ethnically diverse heavy Democrat county Osceola is basically an extension it's like or um it's it's like Orlando bled over yeah, when yeah. it started developing and so um he won it. Yeah. He outright won Osceola. And so, like, when you look at the Orlando metro area, again, it's a similar story as Tampa. He won it in a landslide, and he almost won the core of Orlando itself. Same thing with Jacksonville in the north. He won Duval in a landslide. He won Nassau and St. John's and Clay County in a landslide. But here's – this is the – and I'll end with this because I'm going to save the best for last. When you get to South Florida – the largest metro area in Florida, literally like one of the top five largest metro areas in America. When, when you name off like largest metropolitan areas in America, you start with like L.A. and New York, and then you go to like Chicago and Houston. Number five or number six is Miami, is the South Florida metropolitan area. Ron DeSantis won the South Florida metropolitan area outright. The three counties that make up South Florida, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County collectively – 
he won collectively the vote between all three of them. To give you an idea of how impossible that is for a Republican, it was six years ago that Republicans got annihilated in all three of those counties combined, let alone the entirety of South Florida. Every single one of those counties individually blown out of the water in. Ron DeSantis not only won two out of the three, he won collectively South Florida, which is something that no Republican has done literally in decades. You have to go back to 1986 to find the last time a Republican won the South Florida metropolitan area outright. Well, and what's interesting, too, is that remember, elections tend to be when you're talking about an incumbent, there are usually referendums on the incumbent and the job that they've done. And you think about all of the controversy, all of the things that have been taking place, all of the big battles that have been fought over there. Um, you know, again, a massive hurricane coming in and, and affecting Florida. Ron DeSantis won, not simply because he he did a good job campaigning. He won because he governed well. He governed effectively. He governed effectively on issues that people cared about. And then he was also willing to fight those cultural battles that were necessary to fight. And, he, and again, he fought them well. There's a ton of people that get up there and like, I want to fight them. And what they mean is I want to yell into a microphone really loudly and that's it. I'm not going to get anything done, right? I'm not going to do anything practical to make things better. Ron DeSantis was effective. He was effective working within the legislature. He was effective messaging. He was effective on the grassroots and on the ground when it came to practical considerations like we got a huge hurricane coming, which means when this thing goes through, we got to make sure that we get power back. We got to make sure that we get resources to people. He managed all of that well. He surrounded himself with effective people that could carry that out. And it showed up. I mean, look, we we all saw that one that <laughs> that one thing video that went viral. Of, of a guy standing out there going, I'm a Democrat, but look, the gas is showing up right now, right after the hurricane. I'm voting DeSantis. Um, it, it, it And matters. the results show it. Yeah. Like, I, I'll end with this. Miami-Dade County, DeSantis won in a landslide. He won it by 11 points. Miami-Dade County, majority minority county, 2 million people. It's like the sixth largest county in America, 100% urban the largest county in the state and he won in an absolute landslide palm beach county i've got family that lives in palm beach county hasn't voted for a republican in 35 years yeah. palm, for, for those of you that are old enough to remember palm beach county was the county that was the heart of the yep. 2000 election controversy with the hanging chads and the butterfly ballots yeah, with Al Gorn, the reason it was it was in Palm Beach County where the Democrats were like suing over and over again was because they won it in a landslide. Al Gore kept suing for a recount in Palm Beach because he knew that he was going to get more votes there yeah. than if he was suing for a recount in, say, Santa Rosa and the, yeah, yeah. the panhandle. And so he like that, that was his whole strategy there because Palm Beach delivered a two to one victory for Al Gore over George Bush. That was like one along with Broward that, that those two counties were the most liberal counties in Florida. Yeah. 20 years I, I, ago. So I'm, I'm going to say this right now. Well, actually, I'm, I'll save this for... And DeSantis won it. I'll save this for the third segment. But yeah, but that's that's the overview of Florida. Florida also picked up, what was it, four congressional seats? Republicans picked up four, four, congressional, four congressional seats in Florida. Seats in Florida. It's Florida. now 20 to 8, the congressional delegation. Yeah. And, so, uh, and, and by the way, Florida, it was almost 21 to 9. DeSantis did so well in South Florida. There was a congressional seat in the South Florida metro area that overwhelmingly voted for Joe Biden that Republicans almost flipped. Yeah. So, I mean, the bottom line is Florida is the major success story, the obvious success story, but there's another success story. And yeah. this is the one that is not as obvious. It, it's, it's being talked about a little, but 
we're again we're going to go into some we're going to go into some of the reasons why we, we need to be paying attention to what's going on here. So let's let's go to New York. Okay, so what happened in New York is quite frankly being completely overlooked by the media right now because yeah. their narrative is ha ha Republicans fell short in the Senate and they're they're going to barely flip the house. The reason they're going to flip the house is because of New York State. Yeah. Lee Zeldin Nobody saw that one coming. <laughs> Lee Zeldin sacrificed his safe congressional Understand what I'm about to 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 go through. Yeah. Lee Zeldin had a safe congressional district that he could have held for his entire life. Yep. The dude's like 42. He's like Nick's age. Yeah. He could have been in Congress until he's in his 80s, like Nancy Pelosi, collecting all the benefits, all the money, all the attention. He could have sat on all the nice committees when Republicans get the advantage. He could have aligned himself with leadership. He could have he could have cruised his way yep. to being a, a career politician in office for another 40 years. He sacrificed all of that to do the impossible and run for governor in New York as a Republican, knowing that he almost certainly had almost a 0% chance of actually winning. Yep. And in doing so, not only did he almost pull off the impossible, we're going to go into the results here in a second, but he created in losing coattails for Republicans all across the state that literally allowed Republicans to save their chances of flipping Taking control the of the House of Representatives. And with the way that things are going in the Senate right now, from a conservative's point of view, Lee Zeldin literally saved the United States from a solid Democrat majority in Congress that could have run roughshod over the filibuster and actually passed some really radical legislation because it's looking like the Democrats are on track to pick up one seat in the Senate. And they how many times did we hear about Democrats had this bill that they wanted to pass in Congress, but they couldn't get it over Joe Manchin yep. or Christian Cinema, yep. one or the other. And if they get 51 seats in the Senate, they they potentially could kill the filibuster and do a lot more. But if we have the House, they won't be able to. The only reason we're going to have the House is because Lee Zeldin sacrificed his own political career in order to save us. Yeah, the so, bottom line is that the two heroes are uh, the two heroes for Republicans on this because we should have a lot more heroes. We don't. Again, we have some villains, right? Yeah. But the, the two heroes for the Republicans are Lee Zeldin and Ron DeSantis. And and I will tell you this anybody that says otherwise is not paying attention. Can I can I get into yeah, some of what happened on the ground in New York? No, real that's quick? what we're yeah, that's what we need to do. Because I don't uh, people were more paying attention to some of these Senate races, including myself in like yeah. Arizona and Nevada and Georgia and stuff like that. So why should we care about what happened in New York? What specifically happened in New, New York, York City is incredible. Statewide, Zeldin got 47 percent of a vote of the vote. This is a state that routinely votes two to one for Democrats. Yeah. Usually you're getting 60 plus percent, sometimes 63, 64, 65 percent as a Democrat in New York. Kathy Hochul couldn't even get 53 percent. And Zeldin almost like people forget that he almost pulled it off. He, yeah. I, I told Nick before we started recording, New York delivered margins for Republicans that Democrats routinely see. Or sorry, Florida uh, on Tuesday delivered margins for Republicans that Democrats usually see in New York State. New York State delivered margins for Democrats that Republicans usually see in Florida. Yeah, so so Democrat, Democrats did not, I mean, they again, they won. They, they won the governorship. But they didn't win. And as here's much. what happened in New, in New York City in particular. This All is right. the crazy thing. So historically, 
The way that a Republican would get historically 47% of the vote in New York State, let alone actually win, is they would blow it out of the water in upstate New York. They would get 70, 80% in upstate New York. Every county, every single county in upstate New York, they would get what we would call dictator margins in upstate New York. (laughs) And they would also get dictator margins on Long Island. They would blow it out of the water in uh, Suffolk and Nassau County. Well, it's gotten to a point now where Democrats are so heavily entrenched in upstate New York that it's a wash. Upstate New York will be lean Republican at best, but it, you're not getting 60, 70 percent in upstate New York. You're getting 55. Yeah. Usually because of play like Buffalo, Rochester, Albany, Syracuse. Buffalo, Rochester, yeah. Ithaca. Um, they, they've just become there's so many they're they're overwhelmingly white college educated. Dem- they're, they're little slices of Charlottesville. Yeah. In, in upstate New York. And, and right. they've become so, so New York City. Get to New York City, it. man. I want to so, hear about this. So the math now, well, what do you what do you do? Like, you know, the traditional playbook that you get from the 80s doesn't work anymore. So what did Lee Zeldin do? Well, he didn't try to replicate the 1980s playbook in New York. What he did was he went into the heart of New York City and he spoke to people that have never voted for a Republican in their life. He spoke to black, Hispanic, Jewish, Asian voters that voted for Barack Obama twice, voted for Hillary Clinton, voted for Joe Biden. And he said, I know you have never voted for a Republican in your life, but you know what? We share the same pain right now. Inflation is out of control. Crime is out of control. Your businesses are getting looted. You're getting mugged in the streets. You're getting pushed in front of subway cars. The, the crime is out of control. The city services are falling to pieces. We have been voting Democrat in this state for 30 years and in New York City for 60 or 70 years. And what do we have to show for it? Absolutely nothing. I know you have never voted for a Republican before, but I would be honored to be the first one in your life to vote for. And if you vote for me, I will not let you down. And he told he carried that message yep. to communities that have never even considered voting for a Republican before because we have written them off. We looked at the math and we operated on the 80s style playbook. We don't care about New York City. We just need to get 70% in upstate and we can afford to get blown out of the water in New York State. We don't even need to talk to those people. Zeldin looked at the math and said, we can't win in upstate. We have to talk in New York City. And he did it. And guess what? The results in New York City were unbelievable. I actually pulled up. I spent the time to actually build out an Excel sheet showing it. Yeah. To give you an idea... In 2020, actually, let me go back just a little bit more. In 2012, yeah, 10 years ago, when Mitt Romney ran for, for president, he got blown out of the water in Brooklyn. He lost Brooklyn by 65 points. Lee Zeldin lost it by 43. That sounds like a landslide, but that is a 20-point improvement over the performance that we had 10 years ago. In Manhattan, it was almost a wash, and the reason why is because Manhattan is rich, white, liberal, college yeah. educated. No, can I can I just say something real quick? Because obviously, people can't see these spreadsheets. So let let's let's discuss this real quick. We got Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, Staten Island, and the Bronx. Right? Yes. Republicans always get crushed here. Right? Always get blown out of the water. But as you look at it, right? This this is the part that's important. Like in Brooklyn, we regularly lose by, you know. 65%, 59%, 64%, 54% on like a, a relatively, you know, a better year. And then this year it was 43. Like that's a 10-point shift from the last, last election cycle to now. Queens, same thing. You're, you're used to getting crushed by 50 know, to 45 50. points. And again, don't when I say 50, I don't mean they got 50% of the vote. No, and you we mean got they 49. got 85. They got 85% of the vote, right? And then this time around... 
It was only 26. 26 points. That's a huge, that's a 20 point shift from last election style. Staten Island, right? Same sort of thing. We're used to losing in Staten Island. Or, by, or barely winning it. Or, or barely, but usually in Staten Island, we're losing, like last several elections, like 15 points, 14 points. Zeldin won it by 33 points. Yeah, he won it by 33. The Bronx, we're used to losing by 66, 77. To give you an idea, Obama won over 90% of the vote in the Bronx. Yeah. And Lee Zeldin managed to hold, I, I've got the numbers right like right here. So in, in Queens, Zeldin got almost 37% of the vote. In Queens? Yeah. And there's not a Republican inside in Queens. <laughs> in, in Brooklyn, he got almost 30% of the vote. Brooklyn's even to the left of Queens. Yeah. There's no like if, if there's no Republicans in in Queens, there's negative Republicans in, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah. And then the the big one is the Bronx. Yeah. The Bronx is literally, I'm not exaggerating, literally 95 to 90% Democrat yeah. in the Bronx. That is not an exaggeration. Barack Obama got I think 91% of the vote when he ran for re-election 10 years ago in 2012. And Lee Zeldin got almost a quarter of the vote. Yeah. In the Bronx. So, and the reason why now people will look at this, and the reason why the press is overlooking and everything else is they're like, "Well, who cares? You lost." They like talked about like AOC won in a landslide victory. It's because she has a landslide district, but she massively underperformed what she should have won by. So, if you win by if if you win by seventy points, that's a landslide. But if you should have won by ninety, that's a twenty point shift in the opposite direction. Here's what I wrote on Twitter yesterday about this. Here's something that flew under the radar in 2016. AOC's congressional district voted. This is in the Bronx. AOC's congressional district voted 82 to 15 for Hillary Clinton last night. She won it 70 to 27. That is a 24 point shift to the right since 2016. And this this is the part that people aren't mentioning because it's still an overwhelming. Now you might say, well so what? We're not going to beat OC in that district. Yeah, you're right. But you That's know what not the point. What the point is is that all of a sudden there's places there's there's pockets in in New York City There's people in New York City that are saying, we've had enough of this crap. And when it comes to Senate races, when it comes to governor races, when it comes to presidential races, that's meaningful. And That that is meaningful. Because you got to understand, a a 20-point shift means that the Democrats are going to control that district with 70% of the vote instead of 90% of the vote, right? But what it means is you might have just picked up like, 10,000 new voters on the Senate level or the governor level or the presidential level. That's impactful. That's meaningful. Because a lot of these counties that we're saying, uh, again, as Republicans, we have this bad habit of looking at a map and going like, I don't understand it. It's all red. That's because more people live in Brooklyn than four of those counties, right? So that when you get a 20-point shift, yeah, you still lost it by 70%. But that's but a you, shift of literally like 100,000 votes. Yeah, you picked, up hundreds of, you picked up tens of thousands of votes in these areas that are very, very impactful. And so it, here's what I want you to do next, Christian, because we, we've talked about this before. You talked about it a little bit on our election prediction night. What you're seeing in New York City mm-hmm. is something that, Christian talked to me talked to me about this four years ago, right? And then all of a sudden, three years ago, he started to work out this theory. And then two years ago, we saw it replicated again. And, and at the time, what he was showing me was not New York City. It wasn't West Palm Beach. He was showing me, and the, the reason, he was showing me Austin. He was showing me Houston. He was showing me um, Richmond. 
he was showing these these various urban areas, and the whole point was is this this theory that he was talking about. So go in and talk about the, donut the, theory. The, the donut effect is really in play in New York State. By the way, to your point, Nick, the, we're not going to win AOC's district, yeah. right? But the difference between losing AOC's district 90 to 10 and losing it 70 to 30 is almost winning the governorship in New York State. Yeah. Any chance of winning... Of, of winning statewide in New York has to rest upon us not losing some of these districts 90 to 10. We need to start yeah. losing them 2 to 1, not 90 to 10. If we get to a point where AOC's district is only 2 to 1 Democrat, that's when somebody like Zeldin actually flips the state. Yeah, And that's what matters because if we want to start being competitive in some of these larger blue states like New York or, or Illinois or even California – or if we want to take states that used to be swing states like Florida and just flip them hard to the right, it's about increasing your margin in places that used to be overwhelmingly Democrat. And if you do it enough, you can actually flip it. Ron DeSantis, again, you know, flipped Miami and Palm Beach, and he almost, you know, he didn't get blown into the water in Broward, right? But you could look at Broward and say, oh, well, we still lost it. Yeah, there's a big difference between getting 42% in Broward and getting 12% in Broward. Yeah. So I've got a map from, this is the 2016 to 2020 swing. By the way, here's the 2020 election results, right? Here's New York City, overwhelmingly blue, right? You know, almost everything's blue. Staten Island's a little bit red, overwhelmingly blue, right? Here's the Bronx, right? 75 points, yeah. you know, 76 points for Democrats, 79 points. But when you look at the shift between 2016 and 2020, colored by shift, everything is red except for Manhattan. Yeah, that's that's the other thing because, again, the Democrats love to come out where it's like, oh, Republicans are the party of rich bankers and corporations and it no that's the democratic party look i'm just going through this right you know all average of 20 point shift all over the bronx all over the bronx you can go into brooklyn average of like 30 something point shifts 20 something point shifts you can go down into into um uh um, this is 2016 to 2020 too we're not even getting this isn't even the latest Zeldin did way better than trump did so this is a trend what i'm trying to say is is this wasn't a one-off thing where it's like oh well Zeldin's from the area and he did really well and hokel ran a bad campaign yeah all of that is true started earlier but what i'm saying is is that this is a trend line that has been continuing for quite some time that's why i pulled this up and i didn't just go back to 2020 i went back to 2000 when i when i did the math for the five boroughs in new york city and the thing that i've noticed was is that 20 years ago, Republicans, shocker, were losing New York State in a landslide and losing New York City in a landslide. But in 2000, George Bush did better in Manhattan than he did in Brooklyn. And he did a heck of a lot better in Manhattan than he did in the Bronx. He lost Manhattan by 65 points. He lost Brooklyn then, um, by 64. And he lost the Bronx by 74. In 2022... Lee Zeldin did 11 points better in the Bronx than he did in Manhattan. They all, all the, all the rich, white, college-educated, wealthy elites live in Manhattan, especially like Southern Manhattan, East Side, West Side. Those people haven't been moving towards the Republicans. The people that have been moving towards the Republicans are black, Hispanic, Asian, Jewish voters that 20 years ago were overwhelmingly on the left. And they're open to our message now. And if we get just a little bit more of them, if we can do 10 points better, five points better, 15 points better, something in that range with what we got from Zeldin's results on Tuesday in New York City, 
we can actually win New York State. So let, let's let's go into what let's go into what all of this means. All right. So the the first thing that we have to acknowledge is Republicans didn't do anywhere near as well as we thought we were going to do or should have done based off of everything that's going on. When when the vast majority of Americans are upset about the direction of the country, when Biden's you know polling is like in the in the gutter. Like we should have crushed it and we didn't. Now, again, a lot of the a lot of things that have been said of this have, have already been said, you know, good candidates matter and everyone now is trying to identify like who do we blame and whatnot. And and look, leadership bears responsibility for this. Leadership bears responsibility um for for outcomes. By the same token, you know, the, the one of the things that I hit on on election night and that I'll hit on again here very briefly is the idea that the last time that we saw a, a genuine, like overwhelming Republican, you know, takeover um, that that actually had staying power. I'm not talking about like just a, a brief, you know, interlude, um, because obviously when Barack Obama passed like Obamacare and all like that, there was a there was a pushback on that saying, OK, well, you're moving too far too fast. But it didn't last that long. It, it just it, it didn't last that long. But in 94, we, we had a, a pretty consistent Republican majority. And part of, I think, what happened there was when they came in, they were they said, this is what we're going to do. And, and they were talking about issues that were important to people. They were talking about things like balanced budget amendment and welfare reform. And these were all issues that were, were important issues. You know, um, if you put us in, we're going to do this and we're going to do it in the first 100 days. We will pass all of this in the House in the first 100 days. And what it does is it gave something that – so they addressed an issue that was important to the people. They gave them a timeline that they were going to do it, and then they did it. Now, look at some of the things that Ron DeSantis was doing down in Florida. He came, If you elect me, I will do these things. This is when I will do it. This is, And then as other things came up, whenever Ron DeSantis stepped up and said, this is what we're going to do, they did it. Yeah. Like they did it. They didn't just say, hey, we're going to talk about this a lot because we think it's what you want to hear. They said, here's the practical action that we're going to we're going to put into play in order to accomplish this. Now, I guarantee you, Ron DeSantis was sitting there as people in his own party were like, can we can we dial this back a bit? We don't want to lose all the money from Disney. Can we do this? You know, hey, we the last thing we want is to lose jobs over here. Or what? And Ron said, no, this is the right course of action and we're going to do it. And he did. And the voters rewarded him for it. What a concept. Voters reward people that do what they say they're going to do to include voters that didn't vote for you the first time. Because you know what? They come around to the idea of, you know what? This guy said he was going to do it, and he did it. And you know what? I, I kind of agree with that. And if your policies work, they work. Yeah, if they work, they work. If I'm realizing the there's a lot of voters, especially the ones that are that are open to, if you say if you do what you actually say you're going to do and I see a benefit from it, I'll change my mind and vote for you. And that's what you actually saw happening in Florida. And then what you see in places like New York City or some of these urban areas is you see various people that are saying, you know what? Yeah, I, I've been I have been governed exclusively by Democrats for three decades, and I'm worse off. Right? My kids are now going to the same failing, crummy school that I went to. And you know what? My neighborhood's not safer. And we still don't have more jobs. And you guys have been promising us the same stuff for 30 years and you're not delivering. You know what? I'm, if, as long as the Republican is actually willing to show up and make an argument and not be a crazy person, uh, you know what? Yeah, I might give them a shot this time. If nothing else than to tell Democrats, you better stop taking us for granted. That is happening right now. And the real question is, will Republicans understand that that's going to be that's going to have to be a critical part of their strategy is actually going into places and saying, <clears throat> I know I'm not going to win this precinct, right? But 
I'm not going to lose it by 80 points. There's a huge difference between, as I said earlier, the difference between losing the Bronx yeah. by uh, 86 to 11 yeah. versus 75-22 is the difference between losing New York State 2-1 to one and almost flipping the state. Yeah. So the, the the lesson again, two lessons learned here for for the Republicans is is one, we need to take a very very close look with respect to what were the objectives of leadership, what were the objectives of some of the other actors that played very heavily in this election, and then two, when when you find success, it, it it is perfectly fine to go look at failure and say what did we do wrong, okay, but an an easier model I might suggest everyone is where did you have success and what did we do right. Because if, if you have a model of success, replicate that, right? Because it's, again, it's when, when you say here's a failure, you learn a lot from failures. There's, there's no doubt about it. You learn a lot from failure. But you can also come to the wrong conclusions about why it happened. I would say right now, we, we've, got, we've got two very, very good examples of what success looks like in two very different places. So let's start working at modeling that. All right, if every every member of Republican leadership right now who is not asking more questions of Lee Zeldin and Ron DeSantis, right? If they're going somewhere else right now, I do not know what you are thinking. But I guarantee you there will be people out there looking for some sort of advice in another direction from people that failed. Because Republicans love to do that, and I don't know why. But look, we've got yeah, I know Lee Zeldin didn't win. But because Lee Zeldin was willing to basically end, effectively end his congressional career in order to try to give us a shot to be competitive in New York, that's, that is one of the primary reasons why we are going to take the House of Representatives and actually have a check on what Joe Biden would do for the next two years. Like, like the, the, the thing that I really hope that Republicans take away from this is a state like New York is not actually lost to us. We thought that it was, yeah. but it, it's, it's not. There, there's, and, and, and it's, look, it's not just about running up the margins in, in, you know, rural, you know, New York and places, you know, that like you and I would be living in. It's about going into communities that have never voted for a Republican before and pointing to the failures of left-wing, you know, policies and saying, I and making concrete plans yeah. to say, if you vote for me, I will do X, Y, and Z. And then, you know what? When you transition from being a Lee Zeldin as a potential candidate to a Ron DeSantis as in you actually win, yeah. then you have to implement X, Y, and yep. Z. And you have to say, to hell with everybody that tells me otherwise. Whether or not they're in my own party or they're yep. in the press or they're in academia or Hollywood, I am going to do this. I'm not just going to talk a good game. There's so many people that talk a great game. Yeah. But there's really few people that when they get into office, they actually do what needs to be done. No, they're willing to carry hard. Like, so on, on the governor's side it's about being to push an agenda and it's about what you're going to sign and what you're going to do for a legislator it's about okay you said this are you going to carry that bill are you going to take that hard vote are you going to take that hard vote against your own party when you need to like we, we need more people willing to do those things because there is always going to be pressure from within your own party telling you oh you really can't do that and i'm not talking about people saying hey that that may not be the best time i'm saying you said you were going to do something go do it the moment you say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and then you get in office and you don't do it because your advisors have said, well, if you do that, we might lose a seat here. Or we might have a problem here. Fire them. Fire them. If you said you were going to do it, go do it. Because one of the biggest things people are looking for, 
One of the biggest things they're looking for is, will you deliver? Will you actually do what you say you're going to do? Because so often in politics, that is not the case. And then it becomes this blame game or an explanation for why you couldn't really do what you wanted to do this time. But if you just get a little bit more power, then you can do the thing that you want. Yeah, the this excuse, is, we can't is, do this because we might lose our majority. Yeah. Or we can't do this because we want to grow our majority. Yeah. And so I, I would say right now, and, and people will people will ask, they're like, okay, if the 1994 model worked, like if the contract with America worked, and somebody was saying, well, you know, they did release a they did release a plan for. I'm like, really? Because I'm I'm pretty involved in politics. I couldn't tell you what what the overall congressional Republican plan was for what happens if they take charge. I couldn't tell you that, and I'm pretty involved, which means they didn't do a very good job of messaging it. But I, I will say this much. And I'm not talking about like our individual congressional candidates. That's the job of leadership, right? Everyone knew what the contract with America was because Newt Gingrich and his team was really pushing that. What, what the response will be, because a lot of people ask, so why don't we just do it again? Because there is always a concern that you're going to pick the wrong things. You're going to pick the wrong things, and then somebody's going to be forced into a situation where, hey, they know their district better than you know you know their district. And no, that's why you say this is our agenda. We are doing these five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten things. We are doing them. So get on board and explain it. Now, you still have the full freedom within your district to focus on the things that you think are most important. Maybe out of those ten things, you want to really focus on these four. But you still got to be willing to commit to do the ten. Yeah. Right. And, and that's fine. That's acceptable. But that, that's what's actually necessary. Now, I want to go into the lessons of what, what are the Democrats going to learn here? This is this could be a, another potential silver lining here because Democrats have a lot of reasons to be happy right now. Right. They should have got crushed. They didn't get crushed. Yeah. They picked up seats. They shouldn't have picked up. They picked up governorships. They shouldn't have picked up. They picked up some state legislatures. They shouldn't have picked up. Right. But they did. I'm guaranteeing you that the conclusion from most of these people is going to be, see, ultra-progressivism works. <laughs> we need to double down on, you know, drag queen story hour, right? Like, we need to double down. These, you know, that's what the, the people were really, really concerned about climate change and January 6th hearings. We should do more of them. Actually, this is something that I wanted to to talk to you about. And Quite, quite frankly, we might end up doing like another episode on this in the future, I, I would propose, which is like, it does seem like going into this election, I remember that we did a lot of episodes. Um, by the way, I, I was adding up the math <laughs> a second ago. I added up all the counties on Long Island, including New York City, like, like you know, yeah. including Brooklyn and Queens. So Nassau, Suffolk, Brooklyn, and Queens. When you add up all four of them, Usually Democrats win Long Island like at least two to one. Um, Zeldin broke even. Wow. Um, which is, I, 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 again, that hasn't happened in in 50 years probably. Yeah. But anyway, um, when you, um, when, when we were like leading up to this election, everybody at this table and not just at this table, like everybody on the right in general. Like I, I remember like Joe Rogan was talking about this and, and not that he's on the right, but, but he was talking yeah. about the lead up to the election. A lot of people that were center right um, and, and then from the right onwards genuinely believed that we were about to witness like a wipeout for Democrats because, you know, the American people have woke. I love I, I hear that phrase all the time. That, you know, America needs to wake up or America has woken up. Yeah. And. And, you know, people are just, you know, fed up with the insanity and, and you know, they see the failures of, of, you know, Democrats in Congress and the White House and stuff like that. And this is going to be a red wave. And that didn't happen. Yeah. And what that really tells us 
So, so, so Grant, we know now that that didn't happen. Where does that lead us? Well, if you're going to be intellectually honest and consistent, that tells you that the United States is not as um, unified as as you believed in terms of of you know a, a worldview. Like us on the right thought that like everybody's upset about inflation, everybody's upset about high gas prices, everybody's crime. upset about crime, everybody's upset about immigration, everybody's upset about the multi-trillion dollar bills that Democrats were passing in Congress. And it's clear that half the country was not upset about those things. Yeah. And you we have to be careful because when this happens on the left, and I remember seeing this after 2016 and after 2020, the reaction from the left was, oh, well, it was misinformation. Yeah. It was, you know, we just need to do we just need to do a better job telling them the truth because they've been lied to. It, I don't I what I'm trying to say is is that. There are two camps in the United States, and both of them exist in their own media echo chambers, right? Conservatives consume conservative media. People on the left consume left-wing media. And the left-wing media narrative was January 6th, climate change and abortion. And we discounted that and said, there's no way anybody's going into the polling booth voting on those things right now when inflation is as high as it is and immigration is, is falling apart on the southern border and crime is out of control in a lot of these cities. There's no way. And yet almost half of Americans showed up on Tuesday and they voted exactly like that. I mean, that that really tells us that like. Well, so I, I wanna, I'm going to disagree with you on something here. I don't think I don't think it's that the, the people that voted blue automatically, I mean, are not concerned about inflation or gas prices. I think that they do have problems within their their own party. The question is, is were they were they willing to abandon what they currently had for what Republicans were offering. And I think some of them, when it came down to it, and, and let's face it, there was some major things that happened a couple days right before the election. And people were showing up to the polls and they weren't convinced that they were training insanity for sanity. They were convinced that they were about to trade the insanity that they knew for an insanity they weren't too sure about. And if, and if that's the proposition, you're not necessarily changing your vote. That doesn't mean you're happy. I don't think there was a ton of people that went into the polls in Pennsylvania and thought, God bless Joe Fetterman, Biden. I love that guy. Fetterman is just, this is what the country has been waiting for. I think the, the, the thought was that Oz was kind of a slick media personality outsider that was not even from Pennsylvania and thought that all of a sudden he could be a senator because he'd been a TV personality. And they didn't like that in Pennsylvania. And I don't mean they didn't like it in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. I mean in rural Pennsylvania where he needed major voter turnout. I think there's a lot of people. I think a farmer in rural Pennsylvania is not thinking to themselves, oh, great, Dr. Oz. I don't think he's thinking that. But he had Trump's endorsement. <laughs> okay. You know, but the, the bottom line is that I'm sorry. I don't I don't think he's thinking that. Yeah. And, and, and in a lot of these places... Um, it, it, I think it really just came down to the fact that it, it's not that people weren't concerned about groceries. It's not that they weren't concerned about gas prices. I don't think they truly believe that Republicans were going to do anything better about it. And so it, if, if they were already inclined, let's say they had voted for Biden, or let's say they had just kind of checked out, mm -hmm. you know, they, they just, I'm sorry, you, j just because you have an R by your name isn't going to be sufficient. You're going to have to explain why. And, and the, the overwhelming explanation was Democrats are crazy. And I think there were some voters that just said, okay, but you haven't proved that you're not. 
So it's a wash. And if it's a yeah. wash, you go with what you know. And and again, in some places, this is what's crazy. Like in some places, voters didn't do that, right? Because in yeah. some parts of America, New York City, New York State, a lot of voters didn't go with what they knew because nope. what they knew was terrible. Well, and can I say this? Because they've known it for the last 30 years and they weren't buying it anymore, right? They, that's that's part of the difference. It's like, it, it, again, if, I, if I'm if i going off of something, I if, if I have the unknown, if one candidate is the unknown, and, and I don't find them particularly appealing, but I'm I'm I don't like what I currently have either. That doesn't mean I'm going for the unknown that I don't find particularly appealing. Then there's the question of, okay, I don't like what I currently have, and the guy that's running seems to be pretty reasonable. And you know what? He's making an effort, and these guys haven't done it. Okay, I'll give you a try. That's Zeldin. Then there's the, you know what? <sighs> Look, I didn't vote for the guy the first time, but. He's really stepped up to the plate, and he makes a lot of sense. And a lot of things I'd heard about this guy, I, I believe. But after four years of, of governance, this, I, I think I like this guy. He gets my vote this time. That's DeSantis. And there's a difference between sounding crazy and being very concerned. Like, like I, I, I have heard some people try to insinuate that Ron DeSantis is now a rhino. Oh my if Ron gosh. DeSantis is a rhino, then that word has no— If Ron no DeSantis meaning. is a rhino, then I am Liz Cheney. <laughs> Because that word has lost any and all meaning if Ron DeSantis is now Rhino. Because Ron DeSantis has arguably the most conservative record of any incumbent governor in the entire country. Period. End of story. That that is that is anybody that is anybody that is trashing Ron DeSantis right now. And again, it doesn't mean that I agree with Ron DeSantis on every issue, issue per issue. I'm sure you can find something that I would be maybe a little bit more conservative than Ron DeSantis on. But if you're if you're holding up Ron DeSantis and saying he's a Rhino, he's establishment, he's you, Those words you, have lost all meaning. You, you are no. At that point, it's like you are not a reasonable person. Like I, I am, and that's my point. Yeah, that's my point because there's a difference between being reasonable or not coming across as crazy. Yeah, and being an establishment shill yeah. that surrenders to the left on everything. Yeah, I am sick and tired as as a conservative Republican who has been a Republican my entire life. Yeah, since I was. Literally, I registered to vote when I was 17 yeah. before I could even legally vote because you can do that in Virginia. Yeah. You can you pre-register register, yeah. before um, you, you can vote in a primary before yeah. um, if you're, as long as you're going to be 18, 18 by the, by the general. And um, I've been a Republican my entire life and I've been ve- I've had very conservative views my entire life and I am sick and tired of my choices constantly, constantly having to be between the person who cannot get elected because they do not know how to speak to voters in a way that resonates with them. And they come across as absolute, quite frankly, lunatics and people who are afraid to stand up for what we believe in. And the second they get into office, they want to make a deal. Mm-hmm. They want to cave. I'm, I'm sick and tired of my choice being between the surrender caucus and the suicide caucus. Mm-hmm. I, why can we not have principled conservatives that know how to articulate a message and then when they win and when they win with communities that we have never made inroads with as a Republican, like Lee Zeldin did in New York City or Ron DeSantis did in Palm Beach or Miami-Dade, and then when they get into office, like in, in... in DeSantis's case, actually governed like a hardcore conservative, mm-hmm. didn't compromise, didn't back down, didn't surrender, told people in his own party 
to go pound sand when they said, oh, you need to be careful about lifting the lockdowns earlier. You need to be careful about picking a fight with Disney or standing up for parents in schools against the woke left. He has done everything that conservatives could have dreamed for. And you know what? He sounds reasonable when he does it. He doesn't sound like a nut job. He sounds like... Ron DeSantis sounds like the the same person in the room, and everybody else is the one taking the crazy pills. No, and and I'll, uh, I I agree. And the other thing the other thing I'll say about this is that I have I have seen this before. I've seen this before in Republican primaries. I've seen it before in convention contests, where when when all of a sudden someone starts to become a, a you know a prominent voice, but it's standing in the way of somebody else the slander comes. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is. If you're calling Ron DeSantis a rhino, you are slandering him. You are lying. You are a liar. I'm not saying you got to, I'm not saying he's got to be your pick for something in the future. I'm not saying that, um, you know, you can't have other people that you like better, but if you are using those terms to describe Ron DeSantis, you are either grossly ignorant of what that term is supposed to mean and imply or you are deliberately lying in order to achieve your objective. And I find it unacceptable, completely unacceptable. Don't you ever come to me and ask me, gosh, why can't we get more good conservatives to run for office? Because you will destroy them if you've decided they're not your pick this time around. Don't do that. I, I'm, I'm just so fed up. Vote for who you want to vote for. Support who you want to support. Don't lie about people in order to build up your preferred candidate. And quite frankly, we're seeing that going on right now and I find it inf- I find it infuriating because it's it is deliberately dishonest. All right. So, let me go ahead and let me go ahead and do a quick wrap up, wrap up here. Not as good for the Republicans as it should have been. Everybody already knows this. The two bright spots that we're seeing right now, one in Florida, uh, one in New York. The two Republican heroes right now, Lee Zeldin in New York, because he, he gave up his congressional career to you know, try to give New York a fighting chance, and he did. Part of the reason why we're going to take the House is because of Lee Zeldin's sacrifice and what a great campaign he run. Great job to Lee Zeldin. Ron DeSantis is the other big like hero of this entire election. He's the one that demonstrated that conservative principles work. And I don't just mean for a campaign. They work when they're actually put into play with respect to governance. Right. And those those are the, some of the models that we need to look at going forward when it comes again two very different places. Right. Not all the results that we wanted. I mean, in Florida, pretty much, but not all the results we wanted in New York. But it provides us a model of what works. And now the question is, is how do we replicate it in some of these other areas across the country that bear some some similarities? Uh, that's the good news. Democrats. Again, if there's one silver lining for us with respect to these Democrats, I think you're going to see a big push within the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which essentially says, see, we told you so we can do all of this stuff and still get elected. And we have the best midterm results since 2002. Right. AOC is not the problem, right? It's, Joe Manchin's the problem. I, I, I have no doubt that we're going to see that um, co- coming up in, in future months. And so if Democrats learn the wrong lesson from this and we take the House, what that means is that the House will be a, a check on their power. But you, you will see them ramp up the stuff in the Senate if they hold on to the Senate. You will see them ramp up the rhetoric with, with Biden. You will see the squad uh, start to really ramp up their rhetoric. And again, who knows what that means for 2024? The, the lesson that Republicans could fail to learn here is that if you, you cannot run exclusively on their bad and, and, and we'd be better with them, just trust us. 
Well, what are you going to do? Well, we're not going to go into specifics, but just trust us. We won't do what they're doing. That's not good enough. You, you need to be able to make objective, you know, you need to be able to make objective claims and policy um, promises. And then you need to give them a time in which you're going to deliver on those promises so they can come back and actually grade you. Because what, what, what Gingrich proved in 94 and what DeSantis has proved in Florida is that if you stand by what you're going to say, you can convince people that voted against you last time, not necessarily because they've suddenly decided, oh gosh, I'm, I'm a hardcore conservative now, but because you actually did what you said you were going to do. And when you do that, you make hardcore conservatives, but it doesn't happen overnight because takes those time. people, some of those people that voted for DeSantis that have never voted for a Republican before, not all of them, yeah. but a chunk of those people are going to be part of the next generation of Republicans mm -hmm. in 10 or 20 years. Yeah. And, All right. and, and they will go back and they will say, the first election I ever voted for was Ron DeSantis' re-election. Yep. All right, well, there you go. We gave you the good, the bad, and the ugly of everything that happened on Tuesday. Uh, thank you for joining us. Please join the Volley Chat if you'd like to opine on what we've just discussed here. Give us some more suggestions. Plus, we're going into the holiday season. We've actually got a, a big announcement coming up later next week. That's going to be interesting. Probably next Thursday's podcast. Next Thursday's podcast. Next Thursday's podcast. We got a Very big exciting. announcement. Oh yeah, yeah. You're definitely going to want to stick around for that. Um, we, we're we're going to continue to talk about policy. Continue to talk about making the argument. But we're also going to we're also going to have some fun with some mm -hmm. holiday oriented uh, shows coming up. Uh, as you know, Tina is queen of the bees. We're actually doing some more homesteading stuff. We've. Uh, we're pretty excited about some of the additions yeah. that are coming in, uh, you know, next year, early next year. So we might be talking about some of that on top of the normal topics. Anyways, thank you very much for joining us. Please have a happy Veterans Day, and we'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.